good to see all of you guys here. It's really good to be with you. Like Brandon mentioned, and like some of you anyway probably know, my name is Steve, uh, Steve Jager. Um, I am brand new. So, in fact, if you uh, are a person who has started, who started coming to SOMA even from mid-July to any time before that, you are officially older at SOMA than I am. Uh, my wife Amy and I and our four kids, uh, we moved here to Indianapolis from Champaign, Illinois, uh, just at the end of July. So we are, we are like brand spanking new. Um, we're, we're, we're learning the city. We're learning... The, the rhythms of life around here, we're, we're learning SOMA and we love SOMA. We have so enjoyed getting to meet a few of you really like in depth and well so far. Many of you just kind of in passing so far and we're, we're both, our whole family is really looking forward to getting to know you much, much better over the weeks and the months and the years ahead. So it's just good to be here. Now, Speaking of us, you know, coming into town, I, a show of hands real quick, how many of you have ever done a big move before? Like not just in town, but like cross, you know, to a new city, new state, maybe even a new country. Okay, yeah, look around so you can see the hands. You're not alone uh, in this. Um, and I'm glad that you're raising your hand because I know that there's some people who feel my pain uh, right now. You know what this is like. You know what goes into that. You know how it feels. There are lots of goodbyes in the old place, right? And there's lots of setting up whole new systems and rhythms, and there's finding a whole new community in the new place that you're going to. There's dealing with your wife's grandmother's antique dining room table being destroyed because you allowed it to be put in the moving truck the wrong way. I mean, just hypothetically speaking. Not that anyone would ever do that. So, you know, you know what that's like. You know what all those things are like, sure. Uh, the logistics and the emotions of going through all of that. So with that in mind, that kind of situation in mind, for my inaugural sermon here at SOMA, I wanted to talk about something really energizing and uplifting. Disillusionment. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Because that's one word that could describe how a major move or a major life transition could feel, right? And it's, it's not just with moving. It's not just with life transitions. Disillusionment is a word that could describe all sorts of things or how all sorts of things make us feel. How many of you, another show of hands here, how many of you would say that the last one to two, maybe three years have felt a little disillusioning? Feel free to raise your hand. Mine is up. Yeah. Obviously, there's the pandemic. The length and the devastation of what we have experienced here on a global scale is unprecedented and it is disillusioning. Hurricane Ida last week. Obviously, any hurricane is bad, but when the death toll rises to near 50 and when more than half of those are up in New Jersey and New York of all places, that's disillusioning. Since the run-up to the 2016 presidential election, we have all been disillusioned with politics and even with one another as much as or maybe even more than any time in living memory. There is war. There's racial injustice. There's climate change. 
And having the veil pulled back on all those realities is disillusioning. It's a disillusioning experience. Uncomfortably close to home, the past decade has seen numerous pastors and church leaders and spiritual authorities have these devastating and bewildering public sins. Bill Hybels, Ravi Zacharias, Mark Driscoll. And for those who have been a part of SOMA for the past two to three years, there's been a lot of relational loss and a lot of change. I know that because I've heard that from many of you. So clearly, we all, culture-wide, but right here at SOMA too, we are living in a time and in a cultural moment of immense disillusionment with, with the government, with our neighbors, our family, our friends, with the church, with spiritual leaders and authority, with the state of the world at large. And disillusionment is like water damage. It slowly seeps out into other areas, often hidden from view, and it starts to soak other parts of the house, leaving stains and growing mold and eating away at places that were formerly clean and solid. If we start encountering disillusionment in too many parts of life, if we start taking on too much water, we can grow to be disillusioned not just with those specific circumstances, but with life more broadly. Maybe with life following Jesus. Maybe even with Jesus himself. We have been in this sermon series called Encountering Jesus, and today's actually the last day for it, where we've been looking at these different episodes from the Gospels where various kinds of people encounter Jesus and have a conversation with him. We've seen Jesus encounter an oppressed man, a blind man, a fisherman or a fisher person, thanks to Craig Parker for that. Uh, and last week, a, a social and religious outcast. And we've been looking at what those encounters mean for us as we encounter Jesus in those different ways ourselves and then as we're transformed by him to be on mission for the good news of his kingdom out in the world. So, in light of this reality that we all experience disillusionment at some level, we need to bring that into the conversation. If we're going to encounter Jesus, we have to ask what it means to encounter him on those terms. Disillusioned with the world or with our lives or maybe even with God himself. Because we are all there. If not now, then at some point. So today we are going to look at an encounter that Jesus has with a disillusioned person. Someone who has had their expectations absolutely trounced and the veil pulled back on reality. It's a story that we're going to need to engage our imaginations with a little bit. Because few, if any, of us have lived through the exact situation that's being described here. But we probably are not going to have to dig too deep in order to find our own parallels of disillusionment. So, as we open up God's word right now, I know Brandon already prayed, but I want to pray again real quick just to ask the Lord to, to guide and protect our imaginations as we enter into this text together. So would you pray with me? Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead us. 
Holy Spirit, would you open our ears to hear what you are saying to us this morning? And would you activate and guard and guide our imaginations in Christ as we bring them to Scripture? Speak, O Lord, your servants are listening. Matthew chapter 11. Starting in verse 1. And actually, if you want to follow along in the, the Red Bible, if you don't have a Bible, the Red Bible on your seat there, you can turn to page 864. We're going to be reading out of Matthew chapter 11, starting right in verse 1. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now, when John, that's John the Baptist, heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Now, I realize that on the screen and on your worship guides, originally it said that we were going to be going all the way through verse 19. Um, I found during sermon prep that the cutting room floor is littered with verses 7 through 19 right now. So we just, like, I barely have enough time to get us through verse 6. So that's why we're going to stop right there. But you can continue reading the passage all the way to 19 after the service. Now, I said that we would need to use some holy imagination as we read this text today. If we were right now in a New Testament theology class, we would probably engage this passage along the lines of what it means or what it teaches about the arrival of God's kingdom in the person of Jesus or maybe the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy or, or something like that. But the story of this text is more visceral than just good, solid theology. If we can enter into this account and imagine what John the Baptist was experiencing, there are some invitations to us from God here to encounter him in the midst of our disillusionment. And we can think of those invitations in terms of being three shifts. Shifts that God is inviting us to make in our life in order to encounter him. A shift in action, a shift in posture, and a shift in spirituality. A shift in action, a shift in posture, and a shift in spirituality. First, let's take a look at what this shift in action is that we're invited into. So just a little bit of the backstory. You might remember this. If not, here you go. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He was essentially the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he was the herald or the announcer of the arrival of the long-expected Messiah finally coming to Israel. Prior to Jesus beginning his public ministry, John was this voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. He was calling pe people to repentance in preparation for the Lord to come to Israel and to save them. And then when Jesus appears, John recognizes him as this messianic figure and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Th this is him, guys. Jesus, at that point, convinces John. He kind of has to twist his arm 
to baptize him when John thinks it should be the other way around. But he does it, and then from that moment, John understands that he must decrease. He needs to pull back from being center stage, being visible, having the spotlight on him so that Jesus can increase. His ministry is going to take precedence now. The time of the Messiah had finally come, and so John's job was done. But that didn't mean that his ministry had concluded completely. It appears that he kept preaching and he kept teaching. He kept baptizing people and calling people to repentance. He also royally honked off Herod by publicly calling him out for committing adultery with his sister-in-law, and so Herod threw him in jail. And that's where John had been languishing for some period of time before this story opens up today. So here's where we can start to engage our imagination under the Holy Spirit's guidance a little bit. What do you imagine John was experiencing through all of this? Here he is, having faithfully carried out this ministry that he knew the Lord had given to him, calling God's people back to faithfulness, pointing people to Jesus as the Messiah, And then he willingly takes a step back so that Jesus could begin his work. John passed the baton. He did what he was supposed to do. So was it too much to expect that he would at least be honored for it in some way? You know, that he would be allowed to see God's salvation finally and fully come to Israel. Or at least that he wouldn't rot in prison. That you know, if he had to suffer in prison for a little while, that the Messiah would, you know, at some point bust him out of there. Well, maybe that was too much to expect. Maybe John should have expected something different. I mean, if John understood himself as the last of the Old Testament prophets, as Jesus clearly understood him to be, he would have remembered that things didn't usually go very well for those guys, right? Most prophets led really hard lives. Some of them died horrible deaths. All of them died without having seen the fulfillment of all of these grand promises of God coming true. The promises that they had been preaching about. God's salvation coming to Israel. His his, uh, restoration of David's kingdom. His judgment on sin and evil. His setting all things right finally and forever. If John saw himself in that line of prophets, wearing that mantle, maybe he should have expected something less than honor and ease and getting to witness all of that fulfillment happening. But whatever John should have expected, what he was experiencing was deep confusion. And thus his question to Jesus in verse 3, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? You can hear the uncertainty in his question, right? He's received these reports in prison about Jesus' teachings and healings and miracles, but the Romans are still in control of everything. David's kingdom is not restored. Israel is still very much mired in sin. It does not feel like as a nation they have come back from the exile. Where are the big messianic fireworks that he was expecting. Where, where is his messianic jailbreak break for that matter? Are you the one? Or should I be looking for somebody else? At best, 
John is uncertain about what Jesus is doing and what, what that means for his person. At the very least, he had to have been discouraged about his situation, being in prison. At worst, John was deeply disillusioned about whether Jesus really was the Messiah and about whether he, John, had even completely missed the boat, if he had totally misunderstood what he thought God had been saying all along. Friends, that is disillusionment. And if you've ever been in a place like that, you know how horrible it feels. But here's where we see the first shift happening that's, that's needed to encounter Jesus in our disillusionment, the shift in action. It's the very fact that John asks this question of Jesus in the first place. You see, instead of pulling away from Jesus in his dis- disillusionment, he presses in. John doesn't stay silent. He doesn't let whatever is going on inside himself just fester there. He doesn't let the water damage seep through the walls of his heart and rot the whole thing out. The opposite of John's actions would have been for him to shrink back in frustration or anger or despair or bitterness or even self-pity. You see, pulling away is disengaging with God. And it could come from any number of directions. It could be intentional and full of emotion. It could also be unintentional at first, just feeling worn out and dry and without any energy or desire to engage with God at all. The first thing to know about that kind of description right there is that we are all there sometimes. All of us. That is an undesirable but normal rhythm of spiritual life while we are living in this body. Now, it doesn't mean that it's good, but it does mean that we ought to expect it. But the second thing to know, though, is this. It's dangerous to leave it that way. Whether it's strong emotion or just strong exhaustion that is moving us away from God, it can't be left alone forever to just grow wild and do its own thing. Now, that doesn't mean that we just, you know, sort of soldier on and we press through our disillusionment and we pretend like we're okay. We pretend like we're not really disillusioned. We pretend like we're okay with God for allowing to happen whatever has happened. It doesn't mean that. It does mean that we bring the full weight of what we are wrestling and dealing with directly to God. That's a shift in action, a shift from pulling away, which every one of us is prone to do, to pressing in to Jesus. My mom passed away about 11 years ago, but she was the oldest of two daughters. My Aunt Barb was her younger sister. Now, I don't have any personal memories of my Aunt Barb because when I was five months old, she was killed in a car accident. She and my Uncle Tom were, uh, they had gone out for dinner and a movie and they were driving home that night. And as they were driving, a drunk driver crossed the center line over into their lane and struck them head on. My Aunt Barb was killed instantly. My Uncle Tom survived, but he was horribly injured. He lost his right leg below his knee, lost all of his fingers, his right ear. Just to look at him, you can tell that he is the survivor of a severe burn accident. Talk about disillusionment. I mean, 
here's my Uncle Tom, four years into marriage, no children, and he's lost his wife and his entire future has been just wiped off the board. My grandparents lost their youngest child. And it doesn't matter how old you are, that is devastating. But what's amazing is that if it weren't for my Uncle Tom's scars, and if it weren't for my grandparents being willing to tell that story, you would never know that they had gone through such a catastrophe. That's not because that experience didn't disillusion them or they pretended like it didn't. This altered the course of their lives. But where my Uncle Tom had previously only known about Jesus from having grown up in church and from my Aunt Barb urging him to give Jesus more consideration, his six months of surgery and skin grafts and therapy and recovery forced him to press into Jesus rather than pull away from him. My Uncle Tom is now one of the most mature followers of Christ that I have ever known in my life, and he's one of my heroes. My grandma and grandpa had grown into kind of a weak cultural Christianity that simply couldn't support the weight of that loss. But after the accident, they moved from Chicago to San Diego where they discovered a church and a spiritual community there that led them and walked with them to press into Jesus in their grief rather than pulling away into cynicism or anger. They grew during those decades in ways that I will probably never fully understand. And they became some of my greatest models of faith, hope, and love. They were deeply committed followers of Jesus and amazing people. Now, my mom, like I said, passed away about 11 years ago. Her story was somewhat different. Though she came to a quiet faith in Christ right at the end of her life through her battle with cancer, she spent 30 years after my Aunt Barb's death pulling away from God. She throbbed with the loss of her sister. She was infuriated that the drunk driver essentially walked away from the accident unharmed. To this day, I don't know the guy's name or what the legal consequences in his life were because my folks just would not talk about him. He was a non-topic in my house. And while my parents had already made many choices by this point to walk away from God in several ways, this led them to pull away even further. Now, my mom's story had a redemptive ending. But how different would her life have been if she had spent three decades pressing into Jesus through her disillusionment? How might she have encountered the living Lord and been transformed by him over 30 years now, I cannot and I will not hold judgment over her or over my dad, who's still alive and for whom we pray, for struggling through that as they did. But it does point us to the reality that to encounter Jesus in the midst of disillusionment, we have to make that shift in action from pulling away to pressing in. There's a second shift, and we could call it a shift in posture. Instead of living in a posture of reacting, we are invited by God into a posture of receiving. Receptivity rather than reactivity is how we encounter Jesus in our disillusionment. Let's come back to John the Baptist story here. 
he has asked this question of Jesus through his disciples, and Jesus actually gives him an answer. He, he says, go back and tell John what you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. Oh, and by the way, John, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's it. That's the extent of the back and forth that John gets to have with Jesus in this encounter. We're in this conversation, I should say. But it doesn't mean that the encounter with Jesus is over. You see, John's disciples are going to bring that message, that response, back to John in prison. And then while he's there in that jail cell, he's going to have to decide what to do with it. His encounter with Jesus is going to continue in whatever posture he adopts to what Jesus has said to him. So here's where we have to engage our spirit-empowered imaginations again because the text is silent on how John deals with that answer. But that might be part of the point. Though Scripture sometimes gives us longer conversations that Jesus has with other people, you know, seeing their responses and their reactions, it doesn't give us that here. A disillusioned man gets an indirect answer from a supposed Messiah and the conversation's done. The only thing that John can do here is receive Jesus' response. What else can he do? He is in prison. So, you know, I suppose he could fire back another message through his disciples and say something like, um, Jesus, uh, you didn't exactly answer my question. Could you clarify a little bit more? Oh, and while you're at it, could you get me out of prison, please? Could have said something like that. Scripture does not say that. I suppose he could have sat down with his Old Testament there in jail, because I'm sure they gave him one, right? And he could have done a Bible study on Jesus' words to him in this message that he sent back. And if he had done that, I'm sure John would have seen that Jesus was directly quoting the book of Isaiah, chapter 26 and 29 and 35 and 61, pointing to these promises of what God was going to do through this anointed Messiah when he came back to save Israel. Jesus is saying, look, it's me. I am the one. I'm the one you've been waiting for, John. But then John's response to that might be, uh, that's great, Jesus. I'm really glad for that. But that Isaiah 61 quote, remember how when Isaiah actually wrote that a long time ago, what, what he really said there was, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, meaning you, Jesus, to, uh, because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, um, proclaim liberty to the captives and the release from prison to those who are bound. That would be great right about now, Jesus, if you don't mind. But Scripture doesn't say that either. It's silent, which implies that John is too. John encounters Jesus in his disillusionment with a posture of receiving rather than reacting. When Jesus doesn't snap his fingers and change John's situation, or when he doesn't bring God's kingdom rushing into the world with judgment on Israel's enemies and immediate salvation for God's people, when those things don't happen, John simply receives Jesus' answer as Jesus' answer. He doesn't start blaming God or blaming Jesus for failing to meet his expectations. 
He doesn't begin tearing Jesus down or telling his disciples to cancel him. There's this wonderful book uh, called The Relational Soul by Rich Plass and Jim Cofield. I think many, some of you anyway, at Soma may be familiar with this. I think it's been used here in different ways. And it does a great job of contrasting these two postures, receptive versus reactive. And it shows that the central difference between those two postures is essentially a matter of trust. A person who has learned to trust is one who is able to receive from others in relationship. And that's even if, they're, if what they're receiving is not something that they want, something that's hurtful, something that is disillusioning. Now, on the other hand, a person with impaired trust, a person who is mistrustful, finds it hard or impossible to receive others. And so they react to them or to circumstances. And as Rich and Jim put it in this book, sometimes that reactivity is dramatic and overt, like when a husband and wife denigrate one another with derogatory names. Sometimes it's stealthy and covert, like when a friend or a coworker emotionally withdraws and stubbornly refuses to address relational issues with us. Scripture is silent on John's processing of Jesus' response, but it's reasonable for us to take that silence as a mark of, healthy, of a healthy posture of receiving Jesus on his own terms rather than reacting with this quiet, smoldering rage. Now, there's one important caveat that I want to make at this point. This posture of receiving is not it is not the same as just a passive acceptance of something that is harmful or unjust. And that's important because this invitation to encounter Jesus in our disillusionment through, this, through a posture of receiving is never licensed to make someone endure abuse. Someone who's experiencing physical or emotional or verbal or spiritual abuse from a spouse or a significant other is not being called to just passively accept that mistreatment because there's the possibility of encountering Jesus in the midst of their pain. That's, that is not what a po posture of receptivity is about. We could say that John's imprisonment was unjust and that if, if we're saying he's got a receptive posture and that's good, then he should just roll with it. But John, remember, was demonstrating a receptive posture toward Jesus, not toward Herod. And Herod was the one responsible for this unjust imprisonment. John could very well have rattled the bars of his cell to call Herod to account, and he would have been entirely justified in doing so. But toward Jesus, he's demonstrating trust. It's imperfect, it's questioning, but it's still there in receiving Jesus' response and encountering him on those terms. There's so much more that we could say, but do you hear God's invitation to you in this? It's an invitation to shift into a posture of receiving rather than reacting. It's an invitation to demonstrate trust right in the midst of what is most disillusioning in your life. And that actually leads us into the final shift that Jesus is inviting us to make. It's a shift in our spirituality. 
Now, I realize that that word spirituality, it is a very broad term. It is a very vague term. It can mean a lot of different things. But I am using spirituality in the sense of all the ways that we try to engage with God. Our spirituality is how we engage with God. And what we're being invited away from in this shift here is any number of different flavors of spirituality. What it's a shift toward is a uniquely Christ-centered and cross-shaped spirituality that embraces waiting and watching and weeping. Waiting and watching and weeping. It's not marked only by those things, but it's not less than those things. In fact, waiting and watching and weeping is what a receptive posture looks like when it's lived out in a relationship with God. After, G- or after John receives Jesus' response in prison, this is basically all he could do, right? Jesus says, yes, I'm the Messiah. He quotes Isaiah to back himself up. He points to some of, of Isaiah's promises coming true, but he doesn't point to others, especially the release of the captives. John would have noticed that. And if John is going to receive that kind of halfway message from Jesus, it means that he's going to have to wait. The full salvation he's looking for hasn't quite arrived yet. And you better believe that he is, he's waiting and he is going to be watching for any sign of that deliverance to come, certainly for himself, his own deliverance from prison, or Israel's deliverance from Roman oppression. And until that comes, his days will probably include quite a bit of weeping. Waiting and watching and weeping. That's a kind of spirituality that runs counter to most of our instincts. We're not good at waiting for God, are we? We, we would rather have it right now. Thank you very much, Jesus. We're only marginally better at watching for God. That takes patience. It takes practice. It takes open eyes. It takes faith to see him at work in small, maybe insignificant ways. And when it comes to weeping, we'll do it for a season, but after a while, it's just old. It's just hard. It's just heavy. It just feels wrong. Or maybe we feel wrong for not being able to stop it. What is wrong with me that I can't be unsad? Waiting and watching and weeping. That's actually a good summary of the kind of spirituality that we're invited into at Advent. Now, I know we're not in the liturgical season of Advent right now, but in some ways, Advent is a season that describes all of the Christian life that we are living now until he comes back. We are waiting and watching for his return with hopeful expectation. And until he does, we are weeping at the brokenness of the world in our own lives and in everything around us. And to me, that sounds precisely like the right recipe for encountering Jesus in the midst of disillusionment. I think of Jenna, a beautiful, amazing 40-something-year-old woman who longs to be married, but for whatever reason has not found that relationship. It just keeps not materializing and the loneliness is getting old. I think of Caleb and Angie 
who wanted nothing more than to have children and were devastated to learn that biologically that would be impossible for them. I think of the mothers I know who have had miscarriages, grieving indescribable loss, desperately wanting to be pregnant again, wanting a child, but simultaneously afraid that it might happen again. I think of the spouses and the children and the friends caring for that 60-year-old man with Alzheimer's as they watch him slowly slip away. Friends, that is where and how we are called, or that is where and how we are disillusioned with circumstances, with spiritual life, and with God himself. But that is also where he invites us to press in rather than to pull away, where he invites us to receive rather than react, where he invites us to live that out by waiting, by watching for him, and by weeping in the meantime. As we close here, I, like I said, there's so much more we could have said. I want to give you a minute to just consider where God might be offering you these invitations and how you could accept them. So if you've got a journal or if you just want to do it in the worship guide or a scrap piece of paper or something, you can answer these two questions now or maybe in the week ahead. First, where or how am I feeling disillusioned? Where am I experiencing disillusionment in my life right now? And two, how will I accept Jesus' invitations to encounter him right in the midst of that? How am I going to press in to him instead of pulling away? How am I going to live with a posture of receiving instead of reacting? Where am I going to open myself up to more waiting and watching and weeping? You know, maybe disillusionment isn't really how you would describe your life right now, and if so, that is great. Praise be to God. But these invitations are actually still for you right now and for another time down the road and to walk alongside others who do. Others of you are resonating with that feeling of disillusionment, but you're not really sure why. Maybe you can, maybe you're recalling a time from the past somehow. Maybe you have friends who are walking through it right now. Maybe you're listening to a podcast about the sins of Christian leaders and the dysfunctional communities that enable them or about people deconstructing their faith and that's really raising a lot of questions for you. Even if you're unsure, these invitations are for you too. Pressing in, receiving, weeping and watching and waiting. And then still others of you here can name immediately and specifically why and how deeply you feel disillusioned. The church or Christians have treated you or others in a deeply unloving way. Or you've had a, you've had a major crisis in your health or in your job or in your core relationships in life. Or maybe after all this time, whatever that is, God just seems absent and silent. Whatever your particular story or season of life is, the one who was to come, the one who really is the fulfillment of God's ancient promises to save and redeem and restore, that one sees you and he hears you. 
And he invites you to a different way of experiencing this season that you're in where you can encounter Jesus right where you are. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, thank you for guiding our imaginations and our hearts as we heard it today and as we continue wrestling with it. Lord Jesus, would you meet us and help us and walk with us in the midst of whatever our darkness might be. We trust you. We love you. We know that you love us. And we ask all this in your mighty name. Amen.